Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 264. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to join me here And listen, whether you're working out, you're driving, you're walking your dog, whatever you are doing, thank you for taking some time. This week, I'm excited to talk to Dean Strample, Dr. Strample. He is the Dean of Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Now, Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine has an interesting mission that they're working on, and that's increasing the awareness and increasing the availability of osteopathic physicians in Canada. The school reserves a certain number of seats for Canadian students. So if you are Canadian listening to this and you want to come to a U.S. medical school, you're interested in osteopathic medicine, this is the podcast for you. Beyond that, we had a great discussion about the AOA and ACGME quote-unquote merger that Dr. Strample corrects me on and says that it's not really a merger, but he gives a good history lesson for that. And we just had a great discussion overall about osteopathic medicine. So I hope you enjoy. Bill, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Bill, when did you know that you wanted to be a physician? Well, if, if you take it from family lore, and all families have this, they told me that I wanted to be a physician since I was before I was five years old. I take my grandmother's word at that. And, uh, but I don't honestly know. I think when I realized um, I came through college and I decided I was going to try something different because I didn't think at that time I could do it right away. And I worked for the U.S. Department of Labor for a couple of years and I hated it. And my wife was the one that said, you, you know, you've always wanted to go into medicine. Why don't you go back and do it? And that's how it got back in. And it was a 
decision I've never been sorry of. I technically probably always wanted to be a physician, but you really don't know until you get admitted to medical school and then you go, okay, to do that. What was your hesitation to begin with? I was married and had a couple of kids and didn't think I could afford to go. Yeah, I guess I guess that could be a, an obstacle and still is a, an obstacle for a lot of students these days. It can be done. And I'm one of the deans that when I talk to students, my wife runs um, an organization for the spouses of married physicians to say that there is an end in sight and you can get through it, but you got to work at it. It requires both people to work at it quite a bit. I actually had a guest um, a little while ago who wrote a book called Love in the Time of Medical School. She's a, a marriage and family counselor intern, and her husband is a resident. And so she wrote a book on how to keep that relationship going through med school. Well, it's, that is an important issue, and it really requires a lot of work because there's stressors from all levels on that to do that. So you've been in medicine for a few years now. <laughs> what <laughs> what what have you seen from the audience that that's listening right now they're they're pre-med students they're they're still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed wanting to be physicians what have you seen as one of the biggest changes from uh the academic side for students getting into medical school over these years well I think one of the single biggest, first of all, I, I live in, we live right now currently in a very interesting generation in medicine in America. There's actually four different generations involved in medicine. You have the traditionals that were actually right around the beginning of the baby boomers that are still running hospitals and still being involved. They're 70, 75 years old, but they still practice. They have a big influence in lots of the organizations. You have the baby boomers who really went on through this thing in between 1949 and 1966. These were the guys that were there that really had the old guard issues. Then you had the Gen Xers that came in, which really were a different focus on their life. You know, they're the kids that that everybody got a participation trophy. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but that is a big deal because yep. in medicine, there are no participation trophies. Correct. You either can meet the gate or you can't. And for many of the Gen Xers and the Gen Y students, that's not something they've ever had in their life. Unfortunately. There's always another way to go forward, and that is a real shocker for a small group of students, but I have to deal with that all the time. So the biggest change, I think, in medicine academics are, we were always told when I was growing up, you're always told if you desired something hard enough and worked hard enough, you could always have it. In medicine, it is so competitive that you desire isn't what takes. You've got to be able to accomplish that. Not that you desire to be a physician all your life. You have to be able to do the work and get through the gates. It doesn't matter how well you do with people, how nice you are, what a great person you are. If you can't get through the gates of the national boards and the licensing exams and whatever, you will never get there and you will never be successful to do that. That's one of the big changes I've seen to do this. Yeah, and it's funny that the whole participation trophy thing. I, I'm with you. Uh, I'm a, not a fan of that, but it comes up every now and then. There's a there's a story of a of a Caribbean student who couldn't find a residency, just w- couldn't match, and now she's in nursing school, going back to be a nurse. And there was a huge uproar in my community. Like she went to medical school, find something for her to do. Like that. Where's that? Her participation trophy, right? Well, Ryan, let me put it this way. If you looked at all of the young men and women that go to foreign medical schools in the Caribbean or whatever, it is a very small percentage that after actually get 
graduate medical education in the United States. And back in 1960, you could go out from medical school and you could go practice and you could be a general practice doctor. You didn't have to go to an internship. There's no state in the United States now that does, that will grant you a license to practice medicine unless you have at least one, two, or three years of yep. postgraduate medical education. And that is the fact of life reality in all 50 states. Yeah, definitely. It's it's so, one of those rare things. Like lawyers can come out and practice, but physicians can't. And I agree with the rule. Like I'm not ready to see patients graduating medical school. I I think the last state, and I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty close. I think the last state that lets doctors practice right out of medical school was 20, 25 years ago, and I think it was Indiana. Interesting. Okay. For for the student, you mentioned those barriers, those hurdles. Obviously, the barriers for the students listening to this are going to be starting out in college or or maybe the MCAT. From from your perspective, for those students who who stumbled over over those initial hurdles and they're trying to to get back up and and cross the finish line to continue the the analogy, the metaphor. Um, what have you seen students do to be able to to go look i i wanted a participation trophy back then but now i'm proving to you that i can handle it what what should students be looking at to to prove that to a school well i'll speak for my medical school but i think it is this is probably true for most medical schools the admissions committee of any medical school is generally made up of 10 or 12 faculty members and staff, and they establish in their own mind what is going to be the screening criteria for the applications. In our institution, we get about 7,000 applications a year for 300 spots. So the committee looks at that, and right away they say, we're going to establish a minimum GPA, science GPA, and overall GPA. And that we won't look at any files that are less than that. We'll give them a nice letter saying, thank you, but you're no longer being considered. Then number two, they look at how well you did on the standardized tests like the MCAT tests and whatever. Does that make you a good physician? No, we know that going in. But with 7,000 applications, if you really want to do justice, you have to have some screening criteria because a young man or woman coming in with an MCAT of, let's use the new scores, 490, we wouldn't look at. We don't, we, heart, we don't look at anybody with an MCAT score less than 500, and we're probably going to move that level up. Many schools won't look at anybody with an MCAT less than 505. They'll tell you they will, but they really don't, okay? Yep. They screen out half or a third or two-thirds of those applications right away. Then we start looking at the application in detail, not just what did you do on a GPA, your GPA, science GPA, but how well you did in specific courses. And in fact, in the MCAT score, on the old scores, we used to have a, we had 30 years of history looking at those numbers. If you scored, you could have got a 30 MCAT, but if you only scored six in the reading on your MCAT, the reading part, mm-hmm. we knew universally you had about a 90% chance of not doing well in medical school. So if they were le- six or less, we didn't even look at them no matter what their total MCAT score was. Wow. So you could be a whiz-bang in physics, chemistry, and everything. But if your reading score sucked, you did not get you didn't get a look to yeah. do that. And then we start looking at when we get the applications down, we actually read those personal statements. And somebody's reading all of them. I used to read all the ones that would be rejected just to make sure we didn't miss anything. 
but about 80% of the medical statement, personal statements are, Ryan, something like this. I am an X-year-old kid, <laughs> and my ex-relative got X disease, and I felt helpless, and I watched them suffer or die, and I made up my mind I wanted to help people and to do this, and that's how it would come in. Now, that's nothing wrong with a statement like that, but let me be honest with you. 80% of the people write a similar statement, yep. and you are trying to make yourself out of this mass of people, let's say 2,000 people, you're trying to make yourself notify or noticed. So what you have to do is you really have to make it a personal statement. What really going on with you? Why do you want to do this? Whatever, and to do that. Because that makes a difference. People will read that and they take an interest on that, not just the numbers to do this. Yeah. So those are the things. And I've noticed over the years, um, it used to be that if, if a young man or woman got an interview, they felt pretty good about it. Nowadays, we interview probably five or six hundred for three hundred admissions. So you got one in two chance if you get interviewed generally to do that. What's the most What's the most important thing do you think that students most often leave out of a personal statement, other than the the personal part of it? Well, that, the personal part yeah. is the issue, but yeah. the other one is they don't. They don't have somebody proofread it. <laughs> I yeah. mean, if you have a personal statement and you're applying to a professional school and the first, the grammar sucks and there's three or four obviously misspelling or using the wrong word or whatever, I understand you're nervous and you're in a hurry, but it's got to be looked at like you got to have a presentation that looks like it was more than an afterthought that you wrote this thing down because you were filling up space, yep. you know, to do that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm in the process of finishing my second book, which is all about the personal statement. So hopefully you'll get better personal statements in the future. Well, and here's the other thing, Ryan, just so you know, I understand all the medical students out there read all the websites and they get all of the history about when they're getting an interview by X school, they want to know. And there's a website out there that will teach you or tell you everything you should know if you're being interviewed at school X, yep. right? The students need to know that we read those websites too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And sometimes I really don't think they understand that. They come in and they start parroting exactly what's on that website. And I always smile to myself a little bit. And then I, I'm very direct if you haven't figured that out. And I'll say something like, well, let's cut all the bullshit out and tell me what you really think you know, about this issue. And that usually takes them off their pegs a little bit Okay, to do that. I, I, so. I, I'd love it if I were sitting there watching that. It'd be kind of funny to watch. So. All right. So let's <laughs> talk about Michigan State and, and what you're doing as an osteopathic school. Right. Where have you seen the osteopathic medical world as you've been in it for, for as long as you've been in it? Where have you seen that world going? Well, uh, let's talk specifically when... Uh, Osteopathic medicine has been around about 140 years. People don't realize that, but it really has. The five original schools, Kirksville, uh, Kansas City, Des Moines, Iowa, Chicago, and Philadelphia, all still are in business and exist today. Mm -hmm. Michigan State was technically the sixth, maybe the seventh, if you count the Los Angeles school that closed, but it, most likely the sixth school that was came online and it was formed by the osteopathic physicians in the state of Michigan. They decided they wanted their own school. They'd been practicing here a long time, full practice privileges in Michigan, 
since 1909, okay? Excuse me, 1902, okay, in Michigan. So it's been around a while, but the physicians here really decided they wanted their own. So they got together in the state organization, and they decided to raise the money, and so they taxed themselves. So back in 1964, they decided that every one of the osteopathic physicians in Michigan would give, each of them would give $2,000 a year for five years. Now, let me put that in today's dollar terms. Back in 1964, you could buy a brand new Thunderbird convertible for $1,700. (laughs) That would be like the equivalent of the state organization that you may belong to suddenly deciding for all the physicians in the state, they're going to give $55,000 or $60,000 a year to the state organization for five years. How do you think what participation you get with that? Probably not a lot. It would approach 10% or less. I'd be surprised at 10%, but they did it. They put together this osteopathic fund and they started the Osteopathic College of Michigan as a private school in Pontiac. And then state politics intervened because the governor and everything was looking at this And they made a a state law. So Michigan State University became the first university to publicly recognize an osteopathic medical school as a state-supported school. And we were moved from Pontiac, Michigan to Michigan State University in 1969, and we've been here ever since as a full member. And with that, Michigan State University has caused the explosion of osteopathic medicine across the United States. So there's 44 of them now, and all directly related in the last 30 years that all of a sudden osteopathic medicine, it became recognized that this wasn't just something in the background. It's what people wanted. And if you look at the numbers right now, Ryan, 25% of all of the medical students, medical school students in the United States right now are DOs, 25%. That's grown significantly. That is a big number, Ryan, a very big number to do that. For for the pre-med listening to this, still unsure about applying to DO versus MD or both, or sure. what, what do you tell him or her to say, apply to an osteopathic school and to an allopathic school? Well, my issue is, and I, you get some guys in my profession that will tell you that we want osteopathic students that have thought only about osteopathic medicine for their life. And I'm always amused because I have a student that always comes to tell me like it makes some difference. Well, I'm only applying to osteopathic medical schools. And I always ask this question, Ryan. I said, what do you really want to do? You want to be in medicine or you want to be in a specific school? Yeah. And they always look at me like that. And I said, because the real (laughs) issue is if you really want to be in medicine, then you take every advantage you can get to try to get there. Now, mine, I have great confidence in osteopathic medicine. To give you that example, I will tell you if you give me any student, whether if they ever thought about osteopathic medicine in their life or not, and you give them to me for a year or two, I will convince them that this is the best decision they ever made. See, I'm not afraid of the competition. Yep. In fact, the competition should be afraid of me. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Collaboration, not competition, is the motto of this specific podcast. Absolutely. And speaking, well, this, speaking of collaboration... Speaking of okay. collaboration, there's a merger in the works. Talk talk about the merger and how that's going to affect what you do at well, Michigan first State. Of all, just so your iPad is correct, there's no such term as a merger. Okay. 
there's an integration of the uh, the residency programs in the United States under one accreditation standard. Yep. That has nothing to do with a merger of the professions. Yes. It has to do with that originally, the uh, if you understand how residencies, you know why they call them residencies, Ryan? Oh, because you used to actually live at the hospital and be a resident. There, That's right. And they never paid them. Yep. In the 50s, if you were going to, quote, be a resident, and most people didn't do that, you got maybe 100 bucks a month and you lived at the hospital and they gave you food and they might give you a laundry service <laughs> and you could not be married. Interesting. That's what was going on. That was it. And there were a limited number of residents across the United States. When Johnson, the President Johnson and Kennedy, when they created the Great Society, the same argument was there that you've heard on the Medicare and the changes of the issues of the um, Obamacare or Healthcare Reform Act. There weren't enough physicians to handle all of this. The same argument they did in 1963. Go back and read it in the newspapers. And Johnson and Kennedy decided at that point, mostly Johnson because Kennedy had been killed by this time, to get this forward and to prove Medicare to be a successful thing, they needed to create more physicians that were trained in this issue. And so under Medicare, they decided that the federal government for the first time would fund residencies. And between 1964 and about 1984, residency programs exploded in the hospitals across the United States because for the first time they got 100% reimbursement for every mm -hmm. salary and benefit for every intern and resident. And oh, by the way, they got an indirect medical education payment for every intern and resident that rough justice runs somewhere between $80,000 and $140,000 a year, depending on the location you are in the country. Yeah, MD programs went crazy with this. They did a lot. Some DO programs increased, but because we were a smaller element, we didn't have as many. But over the years, they basically wanted as many people in graduate education as they could, and then the government decided that, wait a minute, this was costing too much money, about 11 to $12 billion a year Wow. Okay, to do this. That's the B word. And so what happened was they started looking at it, and the Congress started looking at it, and they say, are we getting our bang for our buck? And then the Institute of Medicine, no longer called the Institute of Medicine, but now the advisory arm for this issue, they produced a public paper that said that what we were doing in graduate medical education was wrong. We weren't helping the people. We weren't producing people to do primary care. We were producing left brain neurologists <laughs> and in the teaching centers, which is fine. I have no problem with that. But that doesn't take care of the vast majority of people that need to be taken care of. So the Institute of Medicine essentially said, and you can read that study, said essentially medicine, the house of medicine, be that both MD and DO, was doing a terrible job on how they were training people for the future. So there was a big push on that they were going to suddenly say, why are we giving this money to the AOA and the ACGME? Because they, those are just organizations that ran the money for the federal government. All the dollars come out of the federal government. So the Fed said, we're, we want more bang for our buck, and maybe we should take it over directly, which means the feds would run it. Well, that panicked the hospital association and panicked everybody. And the ACGME and the AOA, reading the handwriting on the wall, said, because the, the Fed said, we're not going to try to do two separate organizations here. You guys all do OB, you all do neurosurgery, you all do pediatrics, you all do this. You need to pick and get a standard there that we can give one thing that we got the one thing. And that's really what was the impetus for hmm. this 
this combining the uh, the graduate education piece. Now, uh, we can make the idea that they we they came to our side or we came to their side. There's nothing further from the truth on that. It was the reality of the issue that we wanted the House of Medicine to have control of what we were doing in training rather than let the federal government create another agency that was going to run that directly by the federal government. That's great backstory that uh, I didn't know about. So thank you for that. There's a vast majority of people that didn't know about Yeah. That. All right. So back back to the original question. Should that combining of the postgraduate training, how, how does that affect what you're doing at Michigan State? And does that or should that affect what a student is doing as they're thinking DO versus MD? Um, I'll take the last part of that question first. Should it affect their training? No. If you're good, you will get accepted in. I've had DOs in training at the Mayo Clinic and at Cleveland Clinic and mm-hmm. at every hospital you can think. Plus, we've had DOs that were the Surgeon General of the Army. Yep. So we have no problem with that. I was senior commander in the Army myself with this issue for 30 years. So that's not the issue. What it is, it, the discussion really comes down to is, you got to decide what medical school fits your needs best. Now, how it affected Michigan State College of Osteopathic Medicine was, in this state, I have like 40 hospital partners, and I have about 1,968 intern residence spots in 210 graduate medical education programs that are affiliated with my institution. So my 300 students a year more than had enough slots to choose from if they wanted to stay in Michigan. Some of them didn't, but more than enough there. How it's influencing my students now are, as those slots are converted to from DO slots or DOMD slots to a ACGME-only accreditation system, it affects it somewhat because the competition got higher because you now, for the first time, DOs did not have to have competition from the foreign medical graduates. In a DO program, we never took a foreign medical graduate into an osteopathic residency program. Now, as we move into this, we have to take all comers because that's the ACGME standard. So suddenly, if you have somebody in an orthopedic residency program applying for it, instead of having 10 people applying for a residency slot, you might have 40 people applying for a residency slot. The competition ratcheted up. I'm not worried about the competition at my school too much, but we do pay attention to it. And we now point out to the students that the pool got a lot bigger, so they can't rely on their degree only or the people they know or whatever. They've got to be able to produce and they've got to meet the standards of what's there. Like I said, there's no participation trophy for this. Yeah. Let's talk about Canada for a little bit. Osteopathic okay. medicine obviously started in the U.S. and is still very U.S.-centric. But Michigan State is seems to be looking to change that by l- allotting seats for Canadian students. Talk about the impetus for that thinking. Well, I have to give you the backstory on that then. Yeah. Okay, you're right. Osteopathic medicine started in Kirksville, Missouri, and it spread to Chicago and then uh, little John actually took it to London. The British College of Osteopathy has been in business since 1917, and they're a patron by the royal family. I've actually done their graduation over there. Cool. There are there are osteopathic colleges in New Zealand, at Wellington University in Australia, and in uh, the Milan, Italy, and in France. 
and in Germany and in Russia. And I actually know personally the uh, president of the Norwegian Osteopathic Association that's from Norway, nice young woman that's over there to do this. So osteopathic medicine per se is all over, but osteopathic medicine in the American model is different. In the British model, they've always they've been asked if they wanted to write prescriptions and do this and, and under the national health insurance, and they're very clear about it. Why would we want to do that? Most of the primary care people work for us, and we'd rather do what we do, and we don't have to worry about all the opiate things and all the other things to do. The American model of osteopathic medicine was both sides, and Canada was that way. Prior to 1920 in Canada, there were probably as many osteopathic physicians in Canada as there were in the U.S., and most people forgot that. And then in the Practice Consolidation Act in 1924, 25, something like that, you can go back and look at the history, I don't know the date, the, pra the physicians in Canada decided they only wanted osteopathic physicians to just do manual medicine which then made a lot of osteopathic physicians in Canada very unhappy. So Michigan was a direct beneficiary. Many of the hospitals in Michigan were started by Canadian physicians that came back across the border to practice in Michigan where they could still practice full privileges. The school in Los Angeles, osteopathic medical school in Los Angeles, the first female dean in a medical school was actually a Canadian physician that went to the osteopathic school they started in Los Angeles. See, there's a little history for you. Yeah. So after the Practice Act, they only did manual medicine. And I got involved with Canada as a consultant because the Ontario Osteopathic Association and the Canadian Osteopathic Association called me to ask me if I would advise them on starting a school in Canada. So I went to London, Ontario back in the early 2000s as a consultant to listen to their story and to see what I could help with as I thought it was interesting. And I listened to the first meeting and the second meeting, and I began to realize that they didn't have enough horsepower in Canada because the way the residency programs in Canada are controlled, it's by the 12 Canadian medical schools that actually pay directly to the hospitals and all the money runs through the, the universities to the hospitals for those residencies. So it's a different model. So there was no way they were going to have enough third and fourth year slots to run a medical school in Canada. So my first blush was, I've got space in Michigan. If you want to start, start with 50 young men and women, and we'll put them there. You train them the first two years, and I'll help with that. And then I'll take them to Michigan for the third and fourth year clinical slots. And then you can decide what they want to do. And though we started on that model, and I went all the way through the process, I was going to help out Lambton College and and I had support from some of the Canadian gas and oil industry people and whatever. We even hired a lobbyist in there. And I met three times with the minister of education or the deputy minister, Josh, I think, Tepper or whatever. And we were on the way of doing it. We were actually going through the PCAP process in Canada, which means to run a graduate school program in Canada, you've got to be certified by the minister of education. And I finally got called in and uh, in Toronto. He basically said, well, you guys meet the standards. And he said, you can pay the money and we'll go through the whole study. But he said, I'm going to tell you, the Minister of Education is never going to approve this. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Western Ontario University does not want Michigan State University across the border. They have enough competition already with this. And number two, and, and he was very honest with me about it. He said, when we raise a Canadian slot in Canada, it rough justice cost the taxpayers about a million dollars a slot. 
He said, you're going to come in and present an osteopathic medical school model that you can fund this for about $44,000 a year on a tuition model. He said, if that got out in the Canadian taxpaying public, <laughs> that you could do it with that cost, you would put a jeopardy on every of the 12 medical schools in Canada and most of the university system. So the minister of education is never going to approve it. And I knew at that point, I don't charge many windmills in my life. So I said, <laughs> fine. I came back here and I talked to the board here and I said, I would like to have an opportunity to just offer 25 young men and women, Canadian citizens, a chance if they want to study. I never advertise anything in Canada except word of mouth, but we get hundreds of applications every year. Most of them are very well qualified and we get them from all over, all the, pro all the province of Canada come. And we have been very successful for the last eight or nine years. In fact, I, at graduation, I run a Canadian national anthem and the U.S. anthem, <laughs> that's awesome. and we graduate them there, and that's what we've done, and um, it works for us. I've got a tuition model that works. I actually give them, we have a specific Canadian scholarship that the board has approved that helps offset some of the costs, and um, I get the usual glitches of people trying to figure out what they're going to do. I've got three or four students that have gone back as osteopathic physicians that are currently in residency in Canada that got picked up. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to do is grow the number of osteopathic physicians in Canada because I believe the people in Canada deserve that kind of access to that kind of medicine. For a Canadian student to go back to Canada for residency as a DO, from what I understand, they're considered foreign grads uh, with their a, DO. That was a recent change, and they're foreign grads because they're graduating from a college in the United States. And originally, in the, one of the provinces, they just assumed Michigan State was just like anything else, and they would consider them as an application. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, I require all my Canadian students when they come here to take the Canadian equivalent of the ECFMG, that's a U.S. term, but it's mm -hmm. their equivalent, which is a foreign medical graduate test. And I, I take and I help support them take the clinical skills portion of that exam so they all remain qualified for the same pool of Canadians that are coming back in. They're all Canadian citizens. They're coming back in having trained either in the Caribbean or in Michigan for our thing or Australia or whatever. Canada trains a lot of physicians outside the country because mm -hmm. they do not have enough spots in Canadian system to train the people that want to be in medicine in Canada. Yeah. Where do, do you see that students are coming to Michigan State and then going back to Canada to practice or are they staying in the States? Well, my rule is when they first come, first day of every class orientation, I always tell them, welcome, the Canadians are all here. You have one rule that you can't abide by. You can't date anybody in the U.S. <laughs> and they all laugh. And many of them, and one guy said, well, how about if we date and we marry them? We can take, get two for one. We'll take both of them back. <laughs> Do I have some that get married and stay here? Yes. Do I have some that get their residencies here? Quite a few. That doesn't mean they won't go back, but mm -hmm. they get their best training they're going to be eligible to. One of the brightest young women I know is an ENT resident in Detroit who is a young woman from Canada, from Toronto. And I know she'll probably go back, but she wanted this ENT residency and it got offered because they wanted her. And so she's doing an ENT residency here. And then she she has she's obtained dual citizenship now. So she may go back, but I don't know. It depends on the job opportunities and what she's doing. For U.S. students 
shadowing is always one of those big kind of checklist things of getting around physicians, making sure you like the job of a physician and don't just like watching it on TV. Canadian students always, always, always complain that it's impossible to find shadowing. How, How have you found comparing Canadian applicants to U.S. applicants with what they're able to do shadowing wise, clinical experience wise? Well, I haven't noticed the same thing on the shadowing that you have because we're close enough to the Canadian border mm-hmm. that many of the Canadian applicants actually come across here because we have a real – Michigan is farther north than about 90% of the Canadian population. Mm. Most people don't realize that, okay, to do that. So we have lots of people that go back and forth all the time, and many of our students that come here have actually shadowed somebody in one of the border towns in Sault Ste. Marie or, or Detroit, you know, those kind of things to do that. But what we've done is I have a relationship with a hospital or two in Canada already where the Canadian students, if they want to do rotations, can actually go back to Canada and their third year and fourth year and actually work in a Canadian hospital as part of their clinical rotations for this. We've set that up because I really want and I restrict that to just Canadian citizens going back right now. Now, it may be that if we get big enough on that side, I will let some of my American students go get a flavor of it. But right now, I restrict the hospitals on the Canadian side for students from Canada that want to go back and do some of their clinical rotations in Canada, which I think gives them a better opportunity for a residency also. Yeah. Well, Bill, as we wrap up here, for the pre-med student listening to this, whether they're in Canada or here in the U.S. or wherever they are in the world, give give your sales pitch on why they should come to Michigan State. <laughs> Well, my sales pitch would be, and I <laughs> and I can be I can be rather biased because I did not go to Michigan State. Okay, yeah, I this school was just starting when I was getting involved with this issue. But Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine has become one of the leading medical schools. If you look at the U.S. News and World Report, we've been ranked as high as the fifth school, including MD or DO school in primary care in the whole nation. And right now, we run average. We've been in the top ten percent of that list for the last 15 years, because it's not anything to do with the building. It has nothing to do with the dean. It has to do with the faculty and the clinical faculty that I have in the state. I have about 6,000 clinical faculty members in this state that take our students and mentor our students and teach our students and train them because they love what they're doing and they love what the students are doing. That is our single biggest strength. If you want to practice medicine and you want to learn medicine, This is the place to go because we have the exposure of both DOs and MDs and everybody you want, and we have a good time. We're the only university in the United States that has both an MD school and a DO school, Mm -hmm. and we're right next to each other. In fact, many many of the MD students take our manual medicine course or two as an elective because they want to learn the same thing that the DO students are doing. And vice versa on this issue. So it sounds like an awesome opportunity to learn, to train, maybe to be in a little bit of cold weather, but that's okay too. Um, Michigan's not cold. Michigan is like the Riviera of the <laughs> South here to do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you think so. All right, there you have it. Again, that was Dean Strample. If you're Canadian or American in the U.S. and you're interested in Michigan State College of Osteopathic Medicine, Go look them up, see what they're all about. Sounds like an amazing opportunity for Canadian students to come here to the U.S. and then go back to Canada as an osteopath and practice the craft of osteopathic medicine. 
I hope you have a great week. Check us out next week for session 265, where I talk to Luis Angel, a memory master, helping you remember things as you are studying. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.